light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond Farside Chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. Today we will be listening into a conversation between and Beyond guide Damon Pfeiffer and Craig Schulter Douglas, ecologist at and Beyond Pinder Private Game Reserve. Damon will be asking Craig about the day-to-day conservation management that goes on at the reserve, with particular focus on some of the landmark projects taking place at Pinder. Listen in to find out how cheetah populations are managed through the introduction of new bloodlines and hear about how and why rhinos are dehorned to protect them from poaching. Celebrate the reversal of a local extinction with the Pangolin Reintroduction Project and discover the link between local communities and conservation. Damon will also be posing questions sent through by viewers of the Wild Earth Explorers series. Welcome to Andy on Pinder Private Game Reserve. My name is Damon and welcome to our fireside chat for this week. Thank you very much for joining. We're going to be chatting tonight about all things conservation of cheetah and conservation of rhino here at Ambion Pinder Private Game Reserve. And with me, I have a very special guest, Craig Shelter douglas our head ecologist for Ambion Pinder Private Game Reserve. Welcome, Craig. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Damon. Yeah, looking forward to it. To get things started off, Craig, would you mind giving us a bit of a background of yourself, what you do here are some of your roles and responsibilities? Sure. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm the reserve ecologist here at Ambion Pinda. I've been here for four years now. And my portfolio includes overseeing the research and monitoring. So we have a lot of internal and external research projects that are on the go at any given time. I kind of oversee that and run out of two of our research camps. And then I'm also involved in the general reserve management, day-to-day conservation management, including some of the exciting projects we'll be talking about this evening. That's, it's a full plate, but it sounds like a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of good work that we're very grateful for. Okay, so I think to get things started off, We'll start with cheetah this evening. Craig, would you be able to give us a bit of information about the conservation of cheetah here at Ambion Pinda? And I think as well touch on some of the things that cause them to become endangered and give us some information about their plight across, across Africa. Overall, cheetah throughout the world are unfortunately in, in a decline, a wild cheetah. We only have about 7,100 wild cheetah left in the world. Pinda, uh, right in the beginning in 1991, alongside the introduction of lions, brought in our first cheetah. From the get-go, because of the conservation threat the cheetah are facing, it's been and beyond Pinda's priority uh, predator species from a conservation point of view. And so we really focused a lot of effort to try and, and really assist the cheetah population where possible. Although a lot of the, the global trends are negative, within uh, Pinda we've had a really, really successful story where we've had almost 250 births um, since, since the, the original 11 came uh, in the first 18 months of, of the reserve. And that's from 75 different litters. Because of, of that success, we've been part of, of now what's become a, a meta-population strategy. Because in South Africa we have a whole lot of fenced-off reserves and, and we don't have these, these massive expanses apart from places like the Kalahari and, and Kruger National Park, 
We have a lot of a lot of reserves though. So there's 63 reserves together, and uh, and what we call the cheetah meta population. And what we do to try and manipulate the the natural functioning of of, of cheetah moving from from one area to another is is we actually we manage them and, and we move them, and that's to make sure that the genetics are still good and to also build the numbers um, of, of the species. And what's been really successful is is when that project started, which was in 2011, there were 217 cheetah in, in that project um, with, with the reserves and the meta population. And we're now close to, to 500, which is really, really exciting. And so there have been great collaborative conservation partnerships with, with other reserves and, and people like uh, the Endangered Wildlife Trust to get these numbers into a, into a positive growth. And, and as far as I know, um, this, this meta population project is the only increasing cheetah population trend that the IUCN classify, which is amazing. Now we've got a question from Delia. Craig, Delia is wanting to know if before we release cheetah onto the reserve, if we keep them in a safe environment prior to them then being released. Thanks for the question, Delia. Um, it's a really good one. When this project started out and people started moving cheetah from, from one area to another, they were just put into, into a new environment and, and often didn't do very well and they tried to go back to the, the place that they originally came from. And so now we've developed a, what we call a bomering protocol whereby any cheetah that's coming into a new area will go into a, a safe environment, a safe fenced-off enclosure where they will have food and water and they will spend between two and six weeks in that area getting used to their new surroundings, getting used to the new sounds of, of the bush. And sometimes they can come from a very arid or dry place into a, into a more music or, or wet environment. So, so there are a lot of factors that they have to get used to in a new area. So that's why the bomering period is so important. And it's also to break that homing instinct. So those cheetah are settled in their, in their new environment rather than trying to, to get out of the game reserve and go back to where they originally came from. And then I think, Craig, also quite interesting, just with the cheetah from Ashia, and that, of course, happened a little while ago. And some of you may remember watching, we, we had a couple of sightings with those cheetah. How is that project going now, Craig? How are those cheetah doing? Obviously, them coming from a captive environment. How is that a bit different to how we would normally release cheetah? It's a new project for us. The Shia cheetah are captive-born, and then they go through a whole lot of phases of, of rewilding, where they slowly they learn how to hunt themselves, they learn how to avoid other, other predators like lions, and eventually they get to their release site where they go through the, the bomering process we've just spoken about before they're eventually released. The reason why this project is so important is... Um, Although we've already spoken about the success of this meta population and, and this, this increasing growth trend, because we are managing cheetah within uh, this sort of framework and, and moving them from one reserve to another, there's a, a concern that you could end up getting uh, genetic inbreeding. And so these captive-born cheetah have a completely different genetic makeup to what we have already in the meta population. And to give you an example, out of the 63 meta population reserves, 24 of them, so almost 40%, have genetics that, and bloodlines that, that come from Pinda cheetah. So it's really, really important for the, the long-term success of, of cheetah in South Africa is to be able to bring in new genetics to supplement the, the existing genetics so that we do not get any complications that can arise from, from inbreeding. Another question, Craig, coming from Ryan. She's wanting to know if when we move cheetah, when we release them, if it's done specifically when they're youngsters or sub-adults, 
How does, how does that work? Thanks for the quick question, Ryan. The age doesn't really seem to matter too much. Obviously, if the cubs are very, very young, it's, it's difficult. Sub-adult, uh, any animal around a year or older, we can very safely move with the, with the advancement of the drugs and, and the vets that we work with, as well as the experience of our field teams. And we can now translocate sub-adult cheetah or adults yeah, we can also bond different males together. If one passes away or if, you, if you're moving cheetah onto a reserve that has coalitions, um, you can bond two unrelated males that also increases the genetic makeup and, and then move them. Very, very, very interesting, Craig. There's another question that just come through from Joy. Joy is wanting to know if the communities that surround our reserves, if they contribute and help with the conservation projects. Thanks, Joy. Um, really, really good question. And uh, it's, a, it's an important one because we work together. Without the community relationships and that we have, none of our conservation projects would be possible. We have a really, really unique and, and good relationship with our neighboring communities. They're actively involved. They're, they're directly employed on the reserve. They indirectly get income from the reserve. And so all of the conservation work that happens on the reserve is not only a benefit for us, but is a benefit for our surrounding communities too. So to answer your question, yes, at Pinda and a lot of other reserves, conservation and community work hand in hand. Fantastic. And I think just going off of the back of that... Let's shift focus from here to introduce rhino conservation. Something that we're very proud of here at Ambion Pinda is our conservation of rhinos and something that has allowed us to be comfortable to show them to all of you on our, on our drives out of, out of Ambion Pinda. And so I think coming off of that, Craig, would you be able to give us a bit more information about how we conserve rhinos here at Ambion Pinda, how we keep them safe from poachers, talk a bit about the community involvement earlier. Yeah, sure. Dehorning is, is obviously a, a something that can, can be perceived in many different ways and, and, it, and it can be uh, quite visually uh, stimulating the, the whole process. And it doesn't work in isolation, so it's a really, really effective tool which we, we foresee using in, in the short and medium term until hopefully one day we can find another solution. And the nice thing with rhino horns is they grow back. So if we ever find another tool that we can add to the sort of toolbox that we use to protect our rhino, we could leave them to, to grow back. So, so we like to believe that it's a temporary measure. Again, it's not just dehorning. Um, we, we also need to make sure we've got really good security. That includes our, our surveillance, really good community relationships, really good gate access control, um, as well as research and monitoring. And again, and I've mentioned this, is the community angle is, is so important. I mean, we, we, have, to, we have to be able to, to trust our neighboring communities and, and they need to, to have buy-in into the rhinos so that if there ever is someone who, who is looking around or someone that they, they don't recognize uh, outside of the reserve in the communities, it's in their best interest to notify, and to notify us. So there's, dehorning alone isn't, isn't the solution. I mean, it, it, it is a really effective tool, which in combination with, with a lot of other things that, that we use has, has really been successful here at Pinda. And coming off of that, I believe it's Joe. Joe's got a question asking if since we've started to dehorn, if we've noticed the population of rhinos, I suppose this maybe stems to other reserves as well, if with dehorning, if we've noticed that there's been a stabilizing of rhino populations. It's been really, really interesting. We started the dehorning in, in the beginning of 2016, and so we've now got five really solid years of data 
where we can look back and, and see and try and answer some of these questions. In 2018, we actually had our highest uh, percentage birth rate that we've ever recorded. Um, so we've actually seen a, a quite an increase in, in, in the fecundity of, of the population and, and we've seen a, a lot of calves born in, in the last few years. Statistically, it hasn't uh, on, on Pinda um, had any negative effects uh, in terms of, of the, the growth of the population. If anything, it's, it's speeded it up. But obviously, there are other angles that we had to be careful of is, is you know, territorial fightings between, between dominant bulls. Um, and so we made sure that we, we did as much homework as we, ca- we could before we started. And we dehorned all the, all the bulls together in the beginning so that if there was a territorial dispute, you wouldn't have a, a mismatch of a, of a horned animal fighting with an unhorned animal. And so, yeah, it's, we, we've learned a lot in the five years, um, but uh, we're very happy to report that we've actually seen an increase in, in the population growth curve. Wonderful. Peter's asking if it's stressful for the rhinos the dehorning process? Um, Pete, a really good question. Any animal that is under anesthetic will will have a certain amount of confusion um, uh, when they wake up. Till the drugs that we use start taking effect, there is the pressure of of helicopters, um, of of ground teams in the area, which which would have some level of, of stress. Overall, in terms of the once the drugs have started taking effect and, and the animal's gone down and all of the external stimuli are, are kind of mitigated as much as possible with the earplugs and, and the blindfold, I think the, the, the amount of stress that overall that, that, that animal's gone through is, is negligible because at the end of the day, the, the operation that we're doing is increasing that animal's chances of not being poached tenfold. So although they will always be with any intervention, even for us as people, there, there will be some sort of level of, of, of stress, um, but it's, as, it's mitigated as, as much as possible. And through a lot of experience and trial and error and, and usage of new, new drugs, um, we, we've limited that amount of stress as much as possible. And there's a question that's come from Rex. And Rex is asking, Craig, at what age do we start or do you start to dehorn the rhinos here? We normally aim at about 18 months to two years old for, for the first uh, dehorning. And um, that's when the, the horn is sort of about just under 20 centimeters of, of growth. But it's also at the age where it's safe to immobilize the, the calf with normally its, its mom together. When the, the rhinos are really small and if you have to dart and immobilize the, the mom and, and the baby together, what can happen is, is the, the, the baby can go down and then the mom under the anesthetic can maybe fall on the baby or something like that, which is, is obviously not what we want. So we try and wait until they're at least 18 to, to 24 months old. That's when we believe that there's enough uh, horn growth to incentivize uh, someone to come in and attempt to poach that animal. It's also a safe age where, whereby very low risk of, of mom or, or calf being injured. Another question, Craig, from, from Hillary. Hillary is asking, does the horn grow back after we've obviously taken the horn off? Yeah, thanks, Hillary. And yes, and I think uh, thankfully it does. I mean, obviously, if Rhino didn't have horn, we, we wouldn't have this, this poaching crisis that we, we still find ourselves in. But uh, it is nice knowing that one day, if, if we do find another tool, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, 
whereby we can use a different combination of tools to, to counter the poaching threat, we could leave those rhinos and, and those horns would grow back. What we've actually noticed with some of them is uh, that they have missed their, their second dehornings, the ones that are staying in thick valleys or areas that are quite inaccessible or have learned how to avoid the helicopters, is we, we've seen a very natural regrowth shape and they actually will find a rubbing stump or post and they will go and actually reshape that horn. That's great. That's great news. Great to hear. And Craig, there's a question that's come from Joy, and it's funny because you and I were actually speaking about this beforehand. Joy is wanting to know if we dehorn black and white runners in different ways, or if the two species, if we dehorn them differently, or is it a standard procedure? The standard procedure is pretty similar. The only difference is, is we use slightly different drugs. There's a drug that we use uh, called uh, and um, which we use to help the white rhino uh, breathe a little bit better once they've gone down under the anesthetic. But it has a very uh, reverse effect on black rhino. And black rhino being a little bit more aggressive in nature can also uh, be a little bit more unpredictable uh, under the, the drugs that we use. The actual process of, of cutting off the horn and, and using the helicopters and the vets to, to immobilize the animals and then remove the horn is the same. Operationally, they're, they're quite different experiences. I remember on my first dehorning I ever got to go along with, it was a black rhino that went down. And I remember Simon inviting us to come and look inside the rhino's mouth to see its teeth that we've spoken about so often, how, they, how their molar teeth cut through the twigs. And I remember looking inside and being so excited at getting to see this rhino's teeth and its tongue. And like you were saying, the, the, the breathing rate gets affected by, by the drugs. And it was almost like we'd forgotten that it had to breathe and suddenly it exhaled and we got this like blast of this stuck breath that smelled like a mulching machine. Our hair got blown back <laughs> onto, onto our heads. But yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Once again, like I said earlier, I think emotional and emotional um, experience is the only way to, to put that. And there's a question that's come through from Chevy, Craig. How does dehorning around, because obviously you've done many of your time here, how does it make you feel when you have to dehorn around it? Thanks, Chevy. It's, it's something that I think because we've, we've been involved in so often now, we may have become a little bit desensitized to the whole process. But I'll never forget the first one that I was involved in. It, it was a, for me, it, it was quite a traumatic experience. You have this animal that you've kind of grown up always dreaming of working with and being able to, to assist in the conservation of. It's a, quite a sensory overload. You've got helicopters and chainsaws and, you know, you're removing this horn off the animal. And so initially uh, you, you can be quite overcome, overpowered by, by emotions, seeing this whole process. But as soon as you start understanding the, the motivation behind doing it and, and understanding that by, by removing that horn, you are drastically increasing the chances of that animal surviving, or at least for reducing the likelihood of, of a poacher coming to, to try and, and kill that animal for its horn. That's kind of when the penny drops and you realize at the end of the day, you, you, are, you are helping that animal. And I think knowing that is what makes us all sleep well at night. I remember that same black rhino, like I said earlier, it was my first time experiencing a rhino dehorning. And I remember the helicopter chasing the rhino towards us. We couldn't see whether it was a white or a black rhino. We didn't know. And the next thing, a black rhino exploded from the bush in front of us. And it was absolutely, like, just ticked off. It was snorting and looking everywhere and charging at us. And the, the, the chopper then kind of chased it out the way. And then a second black rhino came out. And it was the one that had been darted. And the difference between the two 
the one that was undrugged and normal black rhino attitude, just ready to go. And then seeing the second one that had been drugged already and was kind of like teetering along with its legs locking out. And to see that rhino almost looking incapacitated was quite an emotional experience. We're having to do this to a rhino in order to protect it from ourselves, basically. Craig, here's a very interesting question from Giraffe Girl. Giraffe Girl is wanting to know, what is the rhino's reaction when they wake up and realize they haven't got a horn anymore, if there is one? Very interesting question, Giraffe Girl. Obviously, the, the drugs that we use, they, when, when, when we reverse the drugs and, and the rhino stands up, and there's a, a couple of minutes where they're still quite slightly sedated and, and, and they're getting their, their bearings. And, and obviously, they would notice that their horn is, is missing. But, but what else we've also noticed is that we've seen within a few minutes white rhino starting to graze right after the horn has been removed. We would be naive if we thought that they wouldn't notice that the horn's missing. Animals are, are, are adaptable. They've learned to carry on without the horns and they've adapted. As I said, with, within a few minutes, you, you can see the animal carrying on, calling, calling at the, the rest of the crash that it might have been with or, or feeding uh, very soon after the whole dehorning process. Luna has another very important question, Craig. Luna's asking, what is the rough cost of dehorning a rhino and how are these dehornings funded? Thanks for the question, Luna. It's, it's an important one because we need to know how we can actually make this feasible. The costs vary, but the, the major costs of, of a dehorning are obviously using a machinery like helicopters are, are really, really expensive. Uh, they, use a, they use a lot of fuel and then requiring really skilled, experienced wildlife vets. And then, of course, the, all the ground handling team, vehicles, all the equipment we need, and all of the microchips that we need, the tags and some of the tracking devices we need. Sometimes you can find three or four rhino quite quickly, and then you can cover those expenses over, over a period of time. But sometimes you can fly for three or four hours without finding the right animal to dehorn. On average, um, it would probably be between 35 and, and 50,000 rand to do a morning of dehorning. But as I said, that, that varies and, and those costs vary depending on, on how long it takes and, and how many you, you're planning to dehorn. There's a question that's come through from Pangolin Pup, Craig, is wanting to know what your biggest conservation success has been and what we're hoping to achieve in the future. Very aptly named. I was going to say. <laughs> You've kind of answered the question already. Uh, the pangolin project has been really, really special. It's been a locally extinct species in, in this part of KZN for, for over 40 years. So as a conservationist, to be a part of a, a reversing a local extinction is something that's that's really, really special. And to start seeing females getting pregnant and, and giving birth to pups in the reserve is, a, is something that I, I don't think I'll forget in a hurry. Unbelievably special. I know when we all saw that photograph, it was like watching your favorite soccer team or your favorite rugby team like score the World Cup winning goal or <laughs> score the World Cup winning try. I think all of us were like high-fiving and yeah, there was a, a, a ripple effect throughout the whole reserve. And Stuck in Bed has asked, what makes Pinda so special for you, Craig? It's a difficult question because there's so many different angles. Overall, it's how it all fits together and how it works holistically. I think the fact that you've got all of these amazing wildlife and conservation projects that are, are benefiting ecologically and, and, and assisting these endangered species, so, so the wildlife, the, the care of the wildlife, and then I think how... 
the community are so integrally involved in, in the reserve and, and directly benefit from the reserve. I think the whole combination of, of this used to be old farmland 30 years ago and, and now it's home to thousands of, of protected species. And so I think the combination of, of caring for, for the land and, and for, for the people that, that own the land and live here and, and local communities and, and as well as the wildlife in combination is, is a really unique and, and amazing story. I 100% agree with you, Craig. I think for me as well, it's that combination of just an immense diversity across the whole reserve, from the mountainous woodlands in the south and the open grassy plains of the far south to the sand forests of the north to new species being discovered here on the reserve, species being named after us, things like the, the pinda button spider, the pinda rain frog that we've tried so desperately to try and show you on camera. Tough things to find. You can hear them calling all over the place, but to actually get one on camera is another story. Also, just the diversity around us as well, all combined with, of course, the conservation. That, for me, is what, what makes Pinda so special. And lastly, a comment from James saying congratulations and thank you for the fantastic job that you're doing keeping all the animals here and beyond Pinda safe. Not just here, I mean, suppose, like you said, with the cheetah and with rhinos elsewhere around southern Africa as well. So, Craig, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks very much for your knowledge and for sharing with us your experiences. There's so many questions we have about, about conservation that we don't get to talk about very often. So thank you for answering all of those and sharing that with us. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. If you'd like to hear more from today's host, Damon Pfeiffer, be sure to tune in to the Wild Earth's live sunrise and sunset safaris every day on the End Beyond or Wild Earth YouTube channel.